Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Ariel Anderson, who is a model, actor, author, property investor, and is perhaps best known for her career as a BDSM model and performer. She is also mad about swords. Now, before we get into the interview, I should perhaps mention how we first interacted, which was on my Twitter feed, um, I saw Ariel doing the splits on her sitting room floor, which by itself is not such an unusual thing, but she wasn't wearing any clothes at the time. But... This will tell you something about how my mind works. On the wall behind her, there was a pair of what looked to me like like late 19th century antique foils crossed on the wall. And so I sent her a comment or something asking about the swords. <laughs> so there's a naked woman doing the splits on the floor and I'm asking her about swords. So, <laughs> so Aaron. Hello. Um, <laughs> what is the story behind those foils? The story behind those foils is I I love swords. Um, I've always loved swords ever since I had a plastic one from a toy shop when I was seven or eight years old. I love them. And I've been a professional model for 18 years. uh, But last year, I finally had time to do some writing. And so I wrote um, an article for an online publication and I got paid for it. And I also got a lot of hate mail for it. And I thought I should buy something to commemorate being paid to write something for the first time. Um, And I thought, I'd like to buy swords. And then I thought, I'm very angry about all this hate mail and actually buying weapons with the money that I got from writing this article just felt like a beautiful closure. Um, And so that's why I bought them. So I I looked on Etsy. I look on Etsy a lot at weapons. And I found this German, a pair of German um, dueling foils um, with this beautiful, I can't remember what it's called, like a figure of eight. Yeah. Beautiful things. Um, And it took up all the money I'd earned from my (laughs) publication. But now it's become a tradition. So every time I get something published, I buy a sword. That is a fantastic tradition. It's a lovely tradition, isn't it? <laughs> I, like, I'm slightly, my focus is split because sometimes I buy suffragette memorabilia instead. So, yeah, I, I kind of have these two things I want. And so I sort of take it in turns. So I've only got three swords at the moment. Um, but okay. I'm hoping to get more because I'm hoping to get more published. Excellent. And so I, I imagine when I do, I'll get more hate mail and I'll need I- another sword. Yes, and, and when your book comes out, it needs to be a really special sword. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've got my eye on some. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you say you, you got them from Etsy. Yes. Have you not looked? Have you not looked at Etsy for weapons? No. Oh, you should. You should. You should. Okay. Where do you get I'm yours not. from then? Um, I mean, you're probably buying different things. I don't know if you're buying antique. I have some antiques. Oh, okay. um, most of my sword budget goes on um, weapons that are made for practice. So that would make sense, modern. of course. Um, you know, sharps and blunts, but they're they're going to get hit. So 
Um, I have a beautiful, beautiful early 19th century sabre, um, oh. which is this one here. I'll put a, a photo in the show notes. Oh, okay? beautiful. Which I got on eBay many years ago. Right. Right, and it's got this lovely patina on it, and it's just yes. beautiful. And this is my champagne opening sabre. So how? This... How? <laughs> oh, okay, Sabraj. Okay, what you do is um, you take a think about a bottle of um, wine bottles are made in two halves, which are kind of stuck together. Long you know everything. Way. I did not know that. You are well, older than me, but you're not very much older than me. I feel like I have well, a lot of learning to do to catch up with you. Oh, God. Well, okay, well, thank well, you. Okay. Carry on. And when it comes to swords, that's, that, that's <laughs> kind of my job. So. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, but wine bottles, I'm guessing, not so much. Well, if you're going to cut them open with a sword, it is. So you, you cut them open with a sword? Well, kind of. What you do is you, wow. is you take... Okay, I will, <laughs> after this is over, I'll send you a video of my 14-year-old daughter doing it at New Year's this year. Please do that. Right, I would like to really, see that. Because it's really, it's not, it's not hard. I'm uh, and, and any, any reasonably solid blade will do. I, I taught my sister-in-law to do it with a kitchen knife. Before so Christmas. I can do this with my swords? Uh, Maybe. It depends on the structure of the, of the type okay. of the sword. Okay. Yes, it needs to be a fairly, fairly beefy thing because you need a bit of mass behind it. Okay. So right. what you do is you, is you take off, it's easiest if you take off the cage and the paper, yeah. all the foil and stuff. Yeah. And you find where the seam runs up the side of the bottle. Yes. Right? And where you've got that thick lip that runs around yeah. the cork. Okay? At the point where the seam and the lip meet, yes. there's a natural sort of point of weakness. Like a weak, So yeah. what you do is you run the back edge of the sword, so not the sharp yeah. bit. The no. Flat. You run the sword flat up the, up the neck of the bottle. Yeah. And the easiest way to do it is if you kind of go one, two, and then three, and it just pops off because what happens is the the fairly heavy rigid steel don't do this with a foil it'd be very difficult with a foil no no um, but I've got like a um, uh, 1897 pattern infantry officer's sword I think that might work okay Maybe. I might try yeah I'm not that well up on the late 19th century swords okay. so you need to make sure that the blade is designed for actually hitting things if it's a if it's a purely ceremonial blade you might break it off at the tank okay um, okay. A heavy kitchen knife would be a good place to start if you're not sure. Yeah, um, it's not as fun, is it? <laughs> yeah, you've got to learn somewhere. <laughs> so, so you kind of you run it up and go one, two, and then as as the fairly heavy, rigid bit of steel connects with that lip, a crack propagates around the lip, and the cork flies off with oh. a little spoon of champagne, which takes. This sounds bits amazing. Of glass Yes. Ah, it's 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 a standard feature of all of my um, sword school parties. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, um, thank you. You're you're very welcome. Well, I tell you what, if we ever get to have a glass of champagne together, let's 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 <laughs> have a sobrage lesson. <laughs> totally. And yes, I definitely recommend Etsy for finding swords. Excellent. Okay. Um, so, what other Sauce do you have? That's it. Well, I've got fencing foils, um, the but fencing I had foil, them. Okay. Yeah, I've had them for ages, and they don't really count because they're just from Leon Paul. Oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. So that's it because I've not written very much stuff that's got published yet, and because sometimes I'm compelled to buy Emmeline Pankhurst things. Um, okay. Yeah, I need more swords now. You see, I can see some of your swords behind you, and it's making me feel a bit itchy. 
about getting some more. <laughs> so I'm at the beginning of my collection because I only really started doing it last year. Um, because it hadn't occurred to me that I could afford any. I just assumed right. they'd all be in thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um, so it was a shock to discover that they actually aren't necessarily. So now I'm, now I'm doing it. Yeah, and, and now is always the best time because they do tend to increase in value. Yes. So, I mean, yes. stores that are going for £1,000 now were 100 quid in an antique shop 20 so years ago. How many do you have? Do you even know? Or is this... Is it um, as for antiques, um, I have a 1796 pattern cavalry saber, oh. which is a thing of glory. Um, oh. It's not in very good condition, um, but it's... It's got a scabbard though, so it's, it's a yes. quite quite a thing. Um, I have a early eighteenth century small sword. Oh, have you? Yeah, well, well, uh, this one. I, I actually use this a lot for. Um, oh gosh, that's for solo training and even for some pedrils. Because it's a pretty robust beautiful. thing. It's got some damage to the hilt. And again, I'll put photos in the show notes. I need to make a note of photos of swords. And There we go. So we learned 18th century short sword small sword. work. Yeah. At, yeah, small sword. Oh, at, it's very... It's beautiful. Yes. It's beautiful. And I loved it, but I never actually saw what we were pretending to be fighting with. And so that's oh, right. Yeah. Okay. It's best to think of it as a knife, I think, mm-hmm. because... It's basically a spike. Yes. um, This triangular section blade, which is relatively rigid. Yeah, it's relatively rigid. And it's got a sharp point, and its only function really is to make holes in people. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it's fought. If you look at the, if you read the books carefully and look at the illustrations, it's fought very close. Right. So it, in feel, I find, okay, it, it tends to turn into foil fencing which is sort of further sure. away yeah but when you're actually really fighting small sword it feels to me a lot more like a knife fight than like a sword fight okay well that would make sense you know because when i was doing my advanced qualification in in stage fight i did knife fighting and i loved it i wasn't expecting to because i thought it was all about swords i thought everything else was going to be a kind of also ran for me but i liked knife fighting very much and i i guess it probably was because it was very similar to my favorite style of fighting um with a sword which was the short sword um, okay so what kind of knives um well we had like blunt pretend <laughs> oh, knives right, okay. because, no, the, one of the things i think is maybe interesting because i'd love to hear what it's like for someone who who didn't uh, for you i don't think you did any kind of theatrical stage fight stuff uh, um you done i any? did a little bit oh you did um, because back when we were starting to do historical fencing or trying to Basically, yes. we came up with the idea of historical fencing. Um, yeah. Which it lots of it kind of it emerged or evolved simultaneously in various places across the globe. So we weren't like you know the founders of the entire movie, but we figured no. out for ourselves that sport fencing was too artificial, and we wanted yes. to do something more real. And then I stumbled across a book in my granny's house, "The Sword in the Centuries" by Alfred Hutton. Which uh-huh. woke me up to the idea that there are actual books telling yeah. you how to actually fight written in the period. Yes. And it kind of started from there. And our fencing coach, uh, sport fencing coach, Bert yep. Bracewell, Herbert uh-huh. Bracewell, um, who sadly died a couple of years ago. Um, but he 
was hugely enthusiastic about all kinds of fencing, including um, sort of single stick, which is like a, a three foot long stick with a basket on it, which works a bit like a saber. Okay. Uh, but also he did some theatrical stuff, including like rapier, rapier and dagger and what have you. Right. And we thought, okay, this is the closest we can get to actual instruction in historical fencing. So let's yes. go and do um, these uh, weekend training courses in like stage combat, which right. was really useful for doing things like putting on fight displays at medieval markets, that kind of thing. Okay, so you have actually choreographed some yeah. fights. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. I wondered, because of course, everything I've done, everything, everything has been choreographed, sometimes okay. by me, sometimes by someone else. Um, and I thought that maybe everything you've done has been improvised I guess is the right word for it where you haven't had choreography so I'm sort of glad that we've got a little bit of an area <laughs> of crossover but I always sort of I've always wondered what the people who do this for real would think of the people who just do choreographed stuff and I imagine there might be a little bit of um hierarchical stuff ah, well, I, <laughs> I can I, I can tell you how I look at it yeah okay um, like stage combat or on screen or whatever yeah. and martial arts training have a lot of overlap in terms of the skills required like weapon control, body control, ability to move, that kind of stuff, right? They're fundamentally opposed in their goals because on stage, everyone should see what's happening and nobody dies. Yes, but in an and you should be able to fight, replicate it over and yeah. over again. Yeah. In an actual fight... Nobody should see what just happened and somebody should die. Yes. Right? Yes. So the kind of training you do to get ready for that hypothetical moment when you're actually going to fight somebody for real is different to the training you do for choreography. But every martial art technique or whatever, every component of it is first trained choreographically. Right. How do you how do you teach a student how to? Oh, so do you, oh, I didn't know that. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, if let's say you want to teach a student how to parry a sword strike to the head. Yeah. Okay. You don't do that by just throwing them into a sword fight and hoping and they see figure what it out. Right, you choreograph. No. It's like here's the sword strike like this. Okay. I'll do the same thing again. Now you do this. Bing bing. And they learn it choreographically. Oh, first. I see. Yes. Okay. No, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. yeah. It's like like learning a language. You learn sort of phrases by rote first yes yeah now we don't stay there for very long um because it's not it's not useful for them to be super good at just the basic choreography and nothing else but no. if they can't learn the basic choreography they can't learn the system as a system okay yes right yes um but also because we are not going to train anything that isn't likely to be useful in a sword fight. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff that looks awesome on stage yeah. that we don't even know how to do. I mean, like sure. I took my kids to see um, the Black Widow movie. Uh-huh, yes. Right? And those fights, okay, I, I, I lose interest when things start blowing up, really. Unless sure, I'm blowing yeah, them up too. myself, that's fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, if, but the athleticism of, the, yeah. of those actions, and, you know, it's like, sort of spinning around and wrapping the legs around somebody's neck and flipping them around and da da da, da. And it's like, oh my God, that's really, really, really high level shit. 
and the freedom to be able to concentrate on making it beautiful rather than concentrate right. on making it functional. Obviously, that there is a pleasure to that. Um, yeah, yeah. It has, it's it's an art. Yes. Right. Yes. And you know, if you're going to train somebody to be a good historical fencer or train somebody to be a good um, stage combatant person on stage, an awful lot of the training in the beginning would look the same. Right. Yes. I don't think I would have really realised that. And it's kind of nice. It's nice to hear that because I've always wondered, because I did a lot of stage fight and I choreographed a lot. And I've always thought, would any of this be useful if I needed it in real life? And just the couple of times I have been in fights, it has been useful. But I've never tried okay. to be in a duel, you know. Um, so when you say a couple of times you've been in fights... Yes. Do you want to tell us about that? <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, it wasn't much. It's never, I've never been in much of a fight. But when I used to live in London, I, um, a couple of times I saw people like beating up other people like on the underground and stuff. I mean, it's the sort of thing you see. And so I intervened a couple of times. And it was just nice to discover that, that my reflexes sort of were in working order like I did I did manage to break up those fights and that was only with stage fight and my big loud posh voice I guess um so maybe it was more to do with that than my fighting skills I did it's not like I picked up a sword um but like yeah some of those techniques some of those techniques from the unarmed combat stage fight I'd done you know they, they do work so okay yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually I'm actually surprised that they would work because like when you when you hit somebody on stage, you're not supposed to actually hit them. And hitting a person is actually a skill. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I've done all these fake punches to people's faces. All of them. And I, I've mostly missed. <laughs> 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 but I suppose that just, I guess it maybe just gives you a little bit of confidence and a little bit of, um, I guess you've got just a bit of vocabulary with how to use your body in order to be mm -hmm. aggressive. I suppose it's that. Um, because I, I think maybe if it hadn't been for doing some stage fight, I, it would just wouldn't have occurred to me to kind of get mm. into any kind of physical situation. Maybe. I don't want to overstate this. Like, this wasn't like in a, this wasn't like in a movie. This was me just kind of pushing people around, really. Okay. Um, and, and shouting at them. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it does and it makes me it certainly makes me think um i had a stalker a couple of years ago who turned up at the house and oh, he's gone away now yeah um so now i am a little bit more nervous at home than i used to be and my my husband was asleep upstairs and my niece was staying and i heard a noise downstairs and i went down to investigate and i realized i picked up my um my infantry officer's sword and it just yeah it just felt well, all my training is in stage fight, but if I have to defend myself and my family, like I'm going to be more competent with this than with anything else. Um, yeah. So, so it's not like it meant nothing going through that training, I don't think. I mean, it's obviously it's far more useful for trying to make beautiful looking things than it is for actually winning fights, I'm sure. But at least it's a somewhat related field and oh, some sure. of those skills I have maybe a little more confidence than I would have done um, as a result. 
And, and it's just a fortunate coincidence that you happened to have the sword off the wall to wipe some dust off it when you heard the noise and forgot it was in your hand when you went downstairs. And then you were surprised by this burglar and he just leapt at you. And it's really unfortunate that you, as you startled, the point came up and he just ran onto it. Yeah, yes. Ah. Whereas I feel as though the training you've gone through makes you actually feel quite safe because you actually do have some like well-founded confidence that you could probably cope with someone attacking you um yes and no oh tell me about the no okay well the thing is yeah i'm reasonably fit and reasonably strong and i can run pretty quickly so you know i can probably get out of trouble just fine yes um but the more you study like actual fighting because most most of the stuff i'm studying is this is how people killed each other in duels and on battlefields and what have you many moons ago when swords were like the default sidearm, right? Yes, yes. And also in duels and what have you. And this, this, so this is like the real thing. Okay. But the... When under sort of mortal threat... Yes. You don't rise to the occasion... The phrase is, you sink to the level of your training. Okay? Yes, yes. And what you are good at is what you have trained to do. Okay? Yes. So there are multiple examples, for example, you know, of, um, for instance, someone who has trained to do disarms. So they're really, really good at taking knives off people. Yes, okay? yes. And in their training, they take a knife off a person, then they hand it back so they can do it again, and they take it off yeah. again. And ha- right. And so when this person is actually attacked by somebody with a knife, they take the knife off them and give it to them back. Okay. Right. Do you think that's what would really happen, though? It has happened. There are, oh. that, has, that has actually happened. Oh, God. All right. Right. <laughs> and and I, I forget how that particular story ends. My suspicion is the person was so startled that they ran away. But um, it's it's just true that that under that kind of really intense pressure, all sorts of things happen that you wouldn't expect and this usually can be traced back to some kind of artifact of your training yes and yeah. i think it's probably fair to say that it's 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 people who aren't very good who probably feel invulnerable invulnerable right. yes as a result of like six weeks of karate right. classes or and, something um yeah like, and like probably i guess the more you know the more aware you are of what you don't know and what you might not be capable of i i, I suppose right. and and if you've done any sort of like training, for example, with daggers or knives. Yeah. Right? Unarmed defense against a knife. Yeah. Um, against someone who's really trying to cut you and has even the vaguest idea of what they're doing, you have to be unbelievably good to get out of that without getting at least cut. Yes. Right? Unbelie- yes. It is really hard. It can be done. Yeah. There are people who can do it. But if the person who's attacking you has even a comparable level of training, you're toast. Yeah, yeah, I guess right. that would probably, I can, um, that would be true. So my approach to the whole self-defense thing, I'm not actually terribly interested in self-defense because mm. it's it's not a very sophisticated scenario. And no. the way you train for the physical self-defense stuff is um, very simple actions at very high intensity in very stressful situations. That's how you train. Yes. And it's kind of dull. Whereas if you get a duel where yes. you have two people who've agreed to be there, and they are 
there's an opportunity for the highest expression of their art to come out. Uh-huh. Right? And that, to me, is beautiful. It's art. Yes, it is. Right? Yes. Um, and that's where my actual interest lies. So when it comes to self-defense, my approach is mostly, I live in a fairly safe area. I don't go into dangerous places. I don't get drunk with people I don't know. <laughs> Think, things like that. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I went on this... Um, weekend seminar with uh, Rory Miller, who's been on the podcast before, who is a self-defense expert, no question about it, uh-huh. right? And the entire seminar was how to think like a criminal so that you can anticipate where they're likely to be and what they're likely to do so you can avoid them. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. And this was like, there was like 60 of us and we were all fairly kind of, you know, roughy-tufty, happy to have a bit sure. of a wrestle and a bit of a knife fight or whatever, you know. And he was basically saying, don't, don't get into a situation where you need to. Yeah, I mean, we were happy to do that. We were, ha- we were happy to be wrestling and knife fighting off in training, not not on the street. But, yeah. But, and we're all there because we understand that the sort of, the specific kind of fighting techniques that you get in almost any martial arts class are either not going to work against... Um, in a normal self-defense situation, or they're totally inappropriate to a normal self-defense situation. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, I have swords all over the place, and there is, uh, my friend Kaya Sadowski was staying here a while ago, and she was sleeping in the study, and so I made sure, because she's a, she's uh, sorry, they, she's non-binary, they like knives a lot, and so I made sure there was a knife in every drawer, and... (laughs) Just, just so that if they woke up in the middle of the night and wanted a knife, there was one in any drawer that they might happen to open. Right? This is what Very we do for Hosting, right. yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the knife drawer was, the main knife drawer was, you know, you couldn't really see that there were any knives missing because I don't right, blades everywhere, you, right? I'm a yeah. blade person. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Um, but if I hear a noise in the middle of the night, as does occasionally happen, um, and I come downstairs, I do not take a blade with me. I take oh, a stick. look at you being responsible. Well, <laughs> no, 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 it's not no? that. Oh, oh. It's that, it's, it's that um, I mean, if you hit somebody with a stick and you do it right, it's pretty effective, yeah? But if I, with my profession, take a sword and stab somebody, oh, there is I a see. reasonable assumption in law that maybe I didn't actually have to do that I'm in a very weak position yes right but yes. if I have a stick and I use you know there are sticks all over the house too mostly for like shoulder stretches and, and stuff <laughs> right yeah um, and that's you know and there were swords to hand but yes, I chose that a would stick make you look, and, yeah, would and make something you still went very badly wrong for the person who came into my house yeah then I can say well look I had the option of a sword. I took a stick instead because I wasn't intending to kill anyone. Yeah, no, that's a really good idea. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but you're in a different <laughs> position. You know, a woman in her house, um, somebody comes in with no particular martial arts training or any of that kind of stuff, and you take a sword off the wall, which you were dusting. You were dusting it. 
At yes. two in the morning, you were dusting this sword because you well, can't stand. To dust be honest, it. I think I think in the moment, what I was thinking was a naked woman with a sword would be such an odd and frightening <laughs> thing to, to find <laughs> that they might just run, run away. <laughs> you missed out the naked bit earlier. I, I have to adjust my visuals now. <laughs> Um, so I think I was thinking of like shock and awe of the visual, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, are you familiar with Modesty Blaze? Is this a burlesque performer? No, no, no. Um, um, Modesty Blaze is a action adventure character uh, written by um, uh, Peter O'Donnell. Oh, so there's uh, a model who's taken her name. Right, okay, right. Uh, yeah, so it's quite, a character. Quite possibly. Okay, that yeah, yeah. She, she, And she's a sort of James Bondy sort of type person, right? And right. her sidekick, Willie Garvin, and they're both amazingly good at martial arts and gadgetry and hang gliding, uh-huh. all that kind of stuff. Super cool, right? But um, she, and this is fiction, obviously, but she has this technique for, like, let's say somebody is, you know, in a jail cell and there's like four guards um, sitting in and playing cards outside the jail cell and she has to deal with all of them quickly, right? Um, she needs a technique for getting that critical two-second head start on them as she comes through the door. And the technique is called the nailer. And what she does is she takes her top off and she goes in topless. And four blokes, eyes riveted to boobs, and in that moment, boom, there is their destruction. Perfect. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so it works in fiction, but you're yeah. the first person I know who's, who's actually tried it in real life. Yeah, and there wasn't anyone there. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if it would have worked. But okay. it certainly, I felt quite confident in the moment. <laughs> now, um, I, I just realised we, we've been talking now for like 53 minutes. Um, oh and <laughs> I've got to my first question. Okay, well done. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't worry, this, this, right. this, is, this, is, this is podcast gold. Um, okay, now I'm going to answer the question. Now, I'm just going now to let's, them. let's have a, let's, let, let's, okay. let's form a question. Okay, uh, we've talked about stage combat a bit, but... Um, Let's go on to your book. Oh, yes. Right. Okay. Thank you. So I have read um, part of it, which you sent me, um, of, of your memoir, and you draw a parallel between learning stage combat and your inherent submissive tendencies, which is quite a yes. story and something I hadn't really thought of before. So, <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Wow. You see, to me, mm-hmm. sword fighting and BDSM seem like almost indistinguishable from each other. <laughs> okay, okay. Let, 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 me, let me explain how they're fundamentally different. Okay? In sword okay, fighting, you yes. try and stop the other person from actually hitting you. Yeah. I never tried very hard with that. <laughs> so I should, I should probably explain. I should probably okay, explain. Go ahead. Um, so I trained originally as a ballet dancer. I wanted to be a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And I, I got far too tall. I'm six foot two. But I loved dancing. I loved it. Um, and when I was 18, I got a back injury, which meant I had to stop dance training. So at that point, I just got a place at a London drama school to do the dancers course and I couldn't dance. So they very kindly let me transfer to the actors course. So um, I didn't know what else to do. I wasn't particularly, I didn't think I was particularly interested in acting, but I thought, well, I've got this place. I might as well um, try it. So and I, it turned out I loved acting. Hmm. Um, and then in my second year, we started stage fight training. Um, and the first thing I thought was, 
oh god this is like dancing like this is this is so similar the way it makes me feel it's the same it's you know it's, it's beautiful shapes it's just like dancing with teeth i guess it's it's like with a different intention sure. um but certainly the choreographed fighting um there's so much beauty and refinement to it it felt very much like coming home really um mm -hmm. it felt like accessing that world that i'd lost through dancing and it was a little less physically demanding so i could just about do it despite my injury what happened to your back it was like it was very it should have been very very minor i got a couple of compressed discs in my Ouch. lower back um from doing a lot of gymnastics um and they just set up a sort of um like a kind of domino effect that i started getting like sciatic pain i started mm -hmm. getting the neck pain as a result as i tried to change my posture to protect my low back so i mean it's a very it's a very ordinary kind of injury it's just unfortunately um, for me, it was one I couldn't really recover from. I'm really, I'm hypermobile, which is great for dancing and modeling in lots of ways, but it does make you really vulnerable to injury. Um, and I, so when I got an injury, it was, it was kind of, um, it was sort of game over for dancing yeah. and gymnastics, but it wasn't game over for stage fight. Um, so I started taking stage fight quite seriously. And as soon as we got to the point where we were actually having fights, I mean, only choreographed fights, but with other people, I thought, wow, this is really hot. This is really, this is really <laughs> sexy. Okay. Um, and I think I had the good fortune to be being taught by someone who, he, I remember him saying in class, like, um, you know, <laughs> sword fighting is like a metaphor for sex. Um, oh, really? And, I, I'm, I, I don't yeah. think my wife sees it that way. <laughs> and so by the time I, I knew enough to be choreographing my own fights, I just I made sure I lost because I thought it was much more fun. And I, I guess if I'd been doing it differently, not in not in a choreographed sense, the only way I could have demonstrated my ability would be from winning, I, I suppose. But with stage fight, you can you can lose everything if you want. Um, and so I did. Um, and so my book is called Playing to Lose because it's about how I have kind of gone through life manufacturing ways to experience this thing that I'm looking for. Um, and stage fight was the first way I found of doing that. Um, at the time I was training in stage fight at drama school, I didn't know BDSM was an actual thing. So I thought I was just all alone with this interest. But yeah, it now it occurs to me that the other people who took it seriously in the class probably weren't into BDSM. They just liked it for itself. And I find that extraordinary because okay. <laughs> it, just, <laughs> it just seems so inherently sexy. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it is, it's, it's, you know, it's beautiful physical mm -hmm. display apart from anything else. Um, and then like people are hurting each other. I mean, a lot of the unarmed combat stuff you do in stage fight there is actual physical contact. You know, if you're slapping someone around the face, you actually do it yeah. um, quite often. I mean, depending on depending on what you're doing. But um, I liked it. And I still, a lot of the things I enjoy in BDSM now are things I originally did in stage fight class. Like? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, like face slapping. Okay. Um, uh, oh, like twisting arms behind backs and all of that kind of okay. stuff so it, it's more the unarmed stuff than the sword fighting thing but you know how to pull hair so that you can get the kind of pleasure of it but without pulling someone's hair out I mean that's that's a technique 
we learned in stage fighting, um, how to sort of dramatize something and not make it like ridiculously painful because I'm doing this stuff on video. So quite often we have to redo things. So um, you want to be able to do things safely. So all the stuff I learned about face slapping has been really useful to be able to pass on to people who might be slapping my face in a video. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very interested to see if anyone who listens to your podcast would would see the things that I see in um in fighting because I I think maybe I'm just terribly terribly unusual um in that regard to see the parallel um I I don't think you're entirely alone (laughs) (laughs) I hope not I hope not because no one you don't you never want to be alone do you really um Um. I mean, it's hitting people with sticks, isn't it? It's hitting people with sticks, and BDSM is also, to some extent, you could break, you could break it down to that. Yeah, you must, you must remember when, um, like, Google put all the adult blogs behind a uh, sort of sign-up wall thing, and Mastercard playing silly buggers with with various porn producers and what have you, and the British government deciding that you can only produce videos and get paid for them if they can be given a, a normal rating by yes. the right all of that absolute shite yeah and it got me very angry because well for many reasons but but specifically it's like okay people who do historical swordsmanship we dress up funny often in black leather funnily enough <laughs> and whack each other with specialized implements and yes. do so in a sort of ethical and consensual manner. Right? And you can put it on YouTube if you want. Right, okay. Yes, okay. I and, see the parallel. And But if the government is going to start passing laws about about one kind of dressing up in black leather and whacking each other with specialised implements, they can apply that to another. I suppose that's true. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And I, I, I suppose they probably wouldn't have done because there isn't the kind of prurient sexual element but it's not fair it's not fair that they wouldn't it doesn't make any sense no because like okay i yeah i watch movies with my kids and what have you and it's perfectly all right for for you to see like bullets going into people and blades going into people and them like screaming in pain and dying yeah that's apparently good clean fun yeah but smacking someone who likes it there's that somehow worse yeah it, that's an interesting that's an interesting parallel make, that i hadn't it doesn't hadn't make any really sense at all no um, no you're right i i think it comes down to the sort of um you know puritanical prurient you know violence is fine because that's you know that's war and and honorable and blah blah, blah. um but sex is not because um Oh, I can't come up with a reason, but yeah, because it just isn't. It just <laughs> isn't. it just isn't because it's, it's yeah. somehow inherently you no know, naughty and bad. It's like, I, yeah, I, okay. No one would be here unless um, people were shagging. Yeah, right. But plenty of people would still be here if we stopped murdering each other. Yes. Yeah. Like, totally. No, that's a very good parallel, and it's like, it's an argument I wish I'd thought of at the time when we were going through the last iteration of the government trying to shut everything down. Um, <laughs> but next time, that's yeah. what I'll say. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nuts. Um, yeah. But, okay. So, how did you get into 
from your drama school doing stage combat and really enjoying getting slapped in the face. And <laughs> yeah. and then you became a career BDSM model. That's yes. not most people who go to drama school don't end up in that profession. I think that's true. I so graduated and the first thing I started doing is I wanted to do Shakespeare. Okay. Um, so I started doing Shakespeare, like low budget theatre shows and tours. Um, and I also wanted to choreograph fights for mm -hmm. theatre, specifically Shakespeare. Um, so I did start doing that. And I realised that um, I was choreographing fights always for men. And I never got to do the fights myself because at least at the time, um, there really weren't very many roles for women doing sword fighting i think it is a little bit better now like game of thrones had at least yeah. one sword fighting woman in it um but at the time there really you know there weren't any jobs coming up where i got to use my skills as a performer you know i could get mm -hmm. work as a choreographer but not as a performer at all um and i had carried on working i kept on being cast as helena in midsummer night's dream over and over again <laughs> because of my height right. okay. <laughs> and i wasn't making very much money i was playing the same role over and over again um i ran out of money to um i'd just done a low budget film that hadn't been paid for a month um i hadn't got enough money to get my headshots redone and i was approached by a couple of photographers in the street about modeling for them so i thought oh. i wonder if um i wonder if i could get someone to take my pictures for free in exchange for me modeling for them you clearly there are some photographers who'd like to photograph me so i just wrote to a random professional photographer in my area and said would you be interested in doing that um and he said yeah actually if you don't mind doing artistic nude work it's quite hard to find models for that um and i'll shoot your headshots for free so okay. i went along to do that and loved it a little bit like when i found stage fight I just found a way to use my dance training, um, you know, modeling. It's all about making beautiful shapes with your body. Mm -hmm. um, and it was less physically strenuous than actual ballet. And I just loved it. So I put my portfolio of new pictures up online. I started getting paid modeling work. Um, and so in my first week as a model, my second ever shoot was with someone who um like lovely lovely photographer who said would you like to come to a gallery um at an exhibition with me after the shoot and I hadn't actually ever been to an exhibition um and I so I was quite excited like a pho photography exhibition um so I went along with him and it was a BDSM exhibition um okay. and it was the first time I'd realized it was when when I realised for the first time that I wasn't on my own, I thought this was entirely just my own weird interest that no mm. one else would share. And I was suddenly in a gallery full of representation. We were talking about how much representation matters earlier. Right. Suddenly artistic representations of all of my fantasies. And I realised that I'm not alone. That This room must be full of people who I didn't know existed. And so by the end of the night, I had business cards from all these artists and photographers who made BDSM work. Um, and so I haven't only done BDSM modeling since then. I've, I've done a wide variety. But as time has gone on, um, my, I've sort of built my reputation. I've been able to do more and more BDSM work and less and less of the non-BDSM stuff, which has been great. So, it, I mean, it's a very niche and strange, you know, it's a strange way to make a living. I guess maybe you would relate that when people ask yeah, us what we yeah. do, it's, it, I think a lot of people think, how can you possibly do that for a job? Like how, how does that possibly right. work? 
Um, and I guess if you just find something you're lucky enough to love enough to to put the time into learning to do it well, then sometimes you can, sometimes you'll be lucky enough to carve a career out of doing exactly what you love. And I think that's what I do. And I hope that's what you do. It, oh, it sounds like uh, it. No, I hate, I hate swords. And swords. <laughs> like, I, I, what I really wanted to do, I wanted to be an accountant. Mm, but, but so my, many people do. But my parents made me do swords. It's strange to, to do a job that basically no one really knows exists. I, I, no, <laughs> one, no one who sort of doesn't already know has the faintest clue what I actually do for a living, right? So no, when, when they say, no. so what do you do? If I have two answers usually. I'm, I, if I don't want the conversation, um, they, I, and they say, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a writer. They say, what do you write? I say, oh, it's nonfiction stuff in a, a really kind of niche area. You probably wouldn't be interested. Um, and leave it at that. But then if they, if, if I have, you know, the spoons to have the conversation, I'll say, well, I teach people how to fight swords. And they're like, ah, and then I sort of explain a little bit. And the next question always is, so do you work in like movies and TV? Oh, right. right. So that's the, where they go to, because that's where they've seen it. Right. The only, yes. the only time people swing long swords that they've ever heard of is in Game of Thrones or something like that. No, that totally makes sense. Right. right, yeah. And it's like, then I have the conversation, well, actually, no, I'm doing the historical stuff, which is related, but um, it's not the same because they have a, opposed goals and what have you. And then yeah. depending on how they respond to that, we might just quietly yeah. let the matter drop or I will geek out with them about you know, history and books and swords and mechanics and training and all the other stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's... It's kind of odd having a job yeah. that you can't explain to someone so they actually... I mean, if I say I'm an accountant, everyone knows what that is, even if they don't really. Yes. Right? I mean, and I, I think it... I love my accountant. On. She's amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, and she's really, really good at, like, spreadsheets and numbers and shit like that. And I'm like, you know, her, her job is to keep me out of jail. That's it. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and her nature is she like she naturally likes things like spreadsheets and accounts and she actually likes yes. that stuff right yes and i don't so i find someone who really likes it and i get them to do it and they're happy because they're getting paid to do what they want to do and i'm happy because yes. i don't have to do it yes and it does it feels like an immense privilege if you do get to do something for your job that you would have done for free because yeah absolutely yeah other i you know i did used to do i i did used to do this kind of thing for free you know dressing up and pretending to be other people right. was exactly what i was doing as a shakespeare actor and sometimes i was doing it unpaid because i wanted it for my cv right. and now i get to be paid and i i've never stopped seeing that as a, a extraordinary privilege um, yeah it's really and lucky. a really lovely thing about doing bdsm professionally is you only get to do it with people who are good at it who know what they're doing um really? which as a submissive well, I mean, I, I turned down a fair amount of work, so I get offered work that right. I don't think would be safe or sensible to do. Um, but because I'm selective, I only work with people who are basically expert in, in the field of BDSM. And so, broadly speaking, I feel really safe, and I'm doing it with some of the sort of best people there are to do that stuff with. And I, yeah, it's really nice, as opposed to if I was a professional submissive where 
people were paying me for sessions. Ah, right. Then often I'd be being spanked by someone who'd never done it before, I imagine. Right. Um, or caned by someone who who'd never held a cane before and just fancied the idea yeah yeah it could be awful couldn't it um because as we know doing something physical like sword fighting there are plenty of ways to get injured and bdsm is is no different from that Um, and weapons control takes practice yeah yeah absolutely and so the privilege of being able to do bdsm with people who are actually good at it um is is considerable wow okay so you sort of segued into it and I mean if someone offered you a Shakespeare part now would you take it yeah I might do I might do you know um because I do love acting and I did love doing Shakespeare I wouldn't play Helena again I can tell you that (laughs) (laughs) well actually actually um Ben Crystal was on the show last year um and he's doing some really interesting stuff with Shakespeare. So maybe you should go talk to Ben. Oh, I think I was listening to that. I, there's a couple of them that I've started listening to and haven't finished yet right. because I got excited by another one. Um, so I listened to <laughs> I listened to the whole Mike Lodes one. Um, yeah, Mike's great. Really great, yeah. Um, and I, I know I need to, again, too many interests. I've got all of your podcasts to catch up with, <laughs> but also all the dressmaking. Oh, right. <laughs> Hard. Well, um okay so the next question on my list was actually what part the swords play in your life now but i think we've kind of covered it it's mostly it's mostly so you can startle burglars while naked yes and and you're a collector my yeah and i love watching anything any movie that has sword fighting in it or really any kind of fighting but especially sword yeah because i absolutely hate it why for the same reason that so many people in the BDSM world hate Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, because you see all the wrong. things that... Right. Yeah, and I think my ignorance protects me to some extent because generally, I think it looks great. Like the, the modern stuff, because of, because of the way things are being filmed, um, I often really get... I believe it. Um, it looks great unless there's swords or armour. Okay, right, and then right. that's when it kind of bothers uh, yeah. you. Yeah, okay. I, I, I can, I can sort of tolerate the. I mean, I do shoot, but I can sort of tolerate the gun stuff, okay. which, which isn't quite right. Um, okay. But yeah, as soon as the swords come out, yeah, you just you can just see that in this actor's hands, it's not a sword. It's some. So have you? A, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, you go ahead. Sorry, I just interrupted out of great excitement. Carry no, on. No, no, please. <laughs> well, I just wanted to ask, like, are there any films where you feel like it has been done really well? Yes. Um, the Princess Bride is a brilliant... Oh, good. I'm glad you were... I was scared you were going to say that was awful. Okay, well, it's not historical. <laughs> sure, okay, it's not supposed okay. to be, right? It's, it's a fantasy isn't movie. It? It's beautiful. Yeah, yes. it's a fantasy yeah. movie and it's a fairy tale. And yes. it is a perfect fairy tale sword fight. And anyone who doesn't like that fight, I'll see them after class. On the more realistic end of the spectrum, um, Ridley Scott's The Duelists, uh, fight choreography by Bill Hobbs. Oh, I've not seen that. Oh, my God. Okay. The opening fight okay. has, it's a small sword fight between oh. a cavalry officer who is a trained okay. killer and good at it that doesn't know okay. a small sword. And, oh. and a young civilian who has a bit of fencing training but can't really fight. Right? Those are the okay. characters. 
And this sounds the, awesome. The performance is unbelievably good. It is exactly, it goes exactly the way it should go. Oh, right? wow. All right. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not a beautiful execution of early 19th or late 18th century small sword perfection. It is right. a sword fight as it would go with these two people, these two characters, if they met, that's what would happen. It's beautiful. Oh, that's it's. I right. agree that when you find things that at, at least feel like that to you, yeah. Um, like obviously, I don't. I don't have so much knowledge, so it's easier for me to get that feeling. I'm sure than it is for you. But it, it's it's wonderful because one of the things I was often aware of choreographing sword fights is that I I always thought the reality would be much messier than this. Yes, generally, and that it would be much more um, hesitant than this. That depends. I feel like I feel like there'd be a lot of kind of waiting, and circling, and, and sort. Of... It depends. There are there okay. are there are famous examples of duels just like that. The most famous okay. being the the two cousins of Ancona, some sixteenth century duel. I've forgotten the details. Who fenced not as if they were cousins, but as if they were blood brothers, right? Because oh. they were too hesitant to fight each other, and they and they oh. all got, they got ridiculed for it. Because remember, oh. a duel is a social thing. Right. right. The, right. the role of the duel in is primarily social. You do it for prestige and for honour, and because if you don't, you're going to be ostracised as a coward. Right. Right. Okay. Which is incidentally why I think duels are unethical, because when yes. you have that kind of social pressure, you don't have genuine consent. It's coerced consent. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Right. Um, but you know. There are some people who just really like that sort of stuff, right? And who are who are famously good at sort of marching in and bam, 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 bam splat, smacking oh, okay. their opponent, killing their opponent. Yeah, so I suppose it would depend very much on the character right. of the I mean, people fighting. If, if I was in the ring with Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather, I've forgotten his name, a big boxer chap, right? Yeah, it would be more like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And you know, running away and running out of the ring and running out and everyone would laugh and I would never hold my head up in a boxing ring again because Floyd would knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> right? But if you look at two heavyweights, like world-class heavyweights fighting each other, of course there has to be some fear there because they know that there's a pretty good chance of getting their faces smashed in. Yes, right? yes. But... They, they're trained for that environment and they're good in that environment. And however the fight goes, you don't see them behaving the way you or I would behave in the same situation. Yes. So I guess, really, if, if fighting in film was better, we'd see more variety, I suppose. We'd see yeah. all of that represented. And we probably don't, really. Not yet. But I think my feeling is it keeps getting better. Because if you look back at like the old Zorro films... It was horrifically oh, no, bad. No, no. One of the best, best, best sword fights on screen. If you like, if you like late nineteenth, early twentieth century Italian dueling saber, uh huh. There is one of the Zorro movies. I'm blanking on which one, but I'll look it up and put it in the show okay. notes. For this okay. List, right. It has an absolutely superb saber fight in it. Oh, okay. All absolutely right. Absolutely superb. The thing is, my experience has been that the closer a sword style is to modern sport fencing or the fencing right. of the period of the movie, which back when this movie was made was basically classical fencing rather than what we think of as modern sport fencing. The closer it is to that, the better it tends to be done. 
Okay, yeah, that, yeah. Well, that would definitely make sense. Yes. Um, so like the, the sword fights that I remember seeing from old movies, often it was like the sword that was going to be used for the parry would arrive before oh, yeah. the... Yeah, and like, you still see that in modern films. I mean, right, okay. Watching, <laughs> okay. Yeah, when I took my kids to see some movie, around, I forget which, there was a trailer for a movie which had some kind of sword fight on, on top of a moving vehicle. I think it was on top of a train. Or okay. Right? And there was, there was, it was swords, right? Yeah. And But it was clearly some kind of, like, avenger science fiction some kind of... Right. And... Um, my younger daughter sort of looked at me and she said, that's not very good, is it, Daddy? And I was like, no. And she said, what? I said, well, did you not see that bit where he turned around and put his sword in the way so that, you know, he was yeah. clearly anticipating what was going to happen and he just put his sword there so his opponent could hit it. Yes. And that made it into the trailer. Oh, wow. Okay, that's alarming, isn't it? Right, Yeah. And, and I've and, seen a lot of like swords clashing above people's heads. Yes, like where like the sword was never intended to ever hit ever, ever a actually person. go to the target. Yeah, yeah, it was just like, well, we're going to bang our swords yeah. together. I've seen and a also, lot of that. Like blades, cut, right? And when you're yeah. when you're fighting with a long sharp blade, so different with a small sword, but with a long sharp blade that, that cuts, the way you tend to use it should should be with an awareness of the fact that it's a cutting blade, like a yes. kitchen knife, like a big yes. kitchen knife. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Rather than like a stick. Yes. Right? The mechanic, Certainly. Yeah, the yeah. mechanics of cutting somebody's arm off are very different to the mechanics of whacking them in the head so their skull breaks. Totally, yes. Yeah, because you need to use the the sliciness of the blade to actually get the job done properly. Yeah. Right? And yeah, it varies a little bit from blade to blade and style to style and what have you, but, but what you see... How you see the big swords being used is invariably as if they are big, heavy sticks. Right. Right. Game of yeah. Thrones okay. being just, yeah, any, any time the long swords came out, I just Oh, sort of no, did it make you and, sad? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sometimes sometimes knowledge can impair your enjoyment, can't Absolutely. it? It's, yeah, it's really, it's really a shame that that happens, but I, of course it does. But of course it, it does. There aren't that many sword fights in it, and I could just sort of no. close my eyes in the... <laughs> and the rest of it was good until season yeah. eight which went absolutely to shit but the first seven yeah. seasons were great um, okay now um, I did want to get on to one other thing which was um, your Twitter bio mentions property investment oh yes so I do love houses that's another obsession okay. yes do you want to tell us about okay let me just mm. put a bit of context mm. on that um one of the difficulties of, of doing what you really, really like to do for a living is it can actually be difficult to make real money doing it. And yes, it can be yeah. difficult to provide some kind of income for the future when you're not physically capable of doing it anymore. Absolutely. Right? And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Yes. Right. Yeah. I have a bunch of strategies that I'm using oh, good. For, for, you know, for my posterity, if you like. Um, but so I just... I'm just curious as to how the property thing came about and how it works. And I will tell you. Do you do property yourself? Um, you- not the way you do. Um, oh, okay. I, I mean, I own the house that I live in, and I did own. I do own the sal that my students train in in Helsinki. Oh, and, great. Um, but I'm, I'm not a landlord 
landlord in any sense. The, you know, when I moved to Finland in 2001, I rented out the flat I owned in Edinburgh for a few uh-huh. years before I sold it. And then I bought okay, so yeah. so, you know, I've, I've rented out property and um, I have... Yeah, so you've experienced it a little. Yeah. Okay. So I think ever since I was 18, and I, I got injured and I realized, wow, the, the way I thought I was going to make money has just evaporated. Yeah. Um, it's, I've been very aware of that as a an issue, um, and I went into another physical job, not as physical as ballet, but it's still physical. And I was always aware that modelling is seen as a very front loaded career. Actually, that's not been my experience. But ever since I started modelling at twenty five, I've thought it was about to be over. At the time I started, I thought maybe maybe I'll make it to being a professional model until I'm 30 and then it will probably be over then I thought maybe maybe I can push it to 35 so for my whole career I've been sort of expecting it to end anytime soon Um, and I know that you know getting having to have major surgery would very likely end my career Um, any kind of accident could do the same thing well because as a model you have to to be physically able but you also have to look a certain way and if you've got like a massive scar you uh, okay. just might find your work evaporating. Um, I think okay. I, I, I know a few models that that sort of thing has happened to. So it does make you very aware of your vulnerabilities. And so I was looking for something I could do to secure an income that didn't depend on my physical ability to, to do anything, really. Mm-hmm. And I had a terrible landlord when I was at drama school um, who... <laughs> one of us didn't have the rent it wasn't me who didn't have the rent one month um and he said oh well like i'll i'll fuck you then would that be all right um so you know really bad really oh. really really bad um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, just awful awful and then a few years later i had a really good landlord and he was the last landlord i had before i bought my first flat um, and it was him who really allowed me to live somewhere safe while I saved the money for my flat. So I was aware that you could be a terrible landlord or you could be a good landlord. Right. And I thought I will try to be a good landlord. So I started acquiring property. To begin with, I just rented out the flat that I bought for myself to live in when I bought a house with my husband um, instead. And then I started buying more. Um, so my aim at the moment is to buy one a year. Okay, um, that's quite until- ambitious. It is it's quite ambitious. Yes, it is. Um, but that's my plan. I need. I want to have 10 and 10 would be enough for me to retire. And I don't want to retire by any means. There's still loads I want to do. But, but you want I would to be, be able, able to retire. To. Yeah, I want You're, to be yeah. able to. And in the process, I want to provide like safe, good housing for people. Uh, I particularly would really like to I'd like to specifically rent to kinky people, especially (laughs) kinky people in my industry. Um, A lot of them are quite frightened of discrimination. Of course. So Airbnb, for example, if they discover you're a sex worker, won't let you use the platform. Um, Not for work, not at all. Like they'll they'll kick you off the whole platform. um, So you can't have your holidays through Airbnb. PayPal as well. Some banks um, won't let you bank with them if you are a pornographer, even though the work is legal. So a lot of us are quite afraid of discrimination. And so the idea of being a kind of kinky friendly landlady is really a quite an appealing one to me um so okay. that's my kind of long term well if, if anyone tenants. listening is kinky <laughs> and needs somewhere to live in the uk um then have a word with ariel <laughs> yes <laughs> okay um so i'm asking how do you finance that 
just um through modeling it's like i yeah just through modeling but like, i don't suppose you i mean you must have mortgages and things I do have mortgages, right, yes. Right, yes. So, so you're, yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah, not yeah. making enough money every year that you have no. the spare cash to simply buy a house? No, not no, outright, I didn't, no. I, I'm, I didn't think that was the case. No, no, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? But it no, would. I'm getting mortgages. Um, and But your I bank will was, lend you based on your modelling income? Yes. Huh. Yeah. Like modelling, BDSM modelling, turns out to be <laughs> really well paid. It's like... I sure, feel a bit but, awful because it's not much like a job. But I mean, banks, in some ways, banks are—they—they they like to see long-term employment contracts and things yes. like that. Yes. So how so do, I'm how long do you long-term self-employed? Okay. Well, I. You got the accounts I, going back far enough, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I'm a limited company for my modelling work, so ah, I, do, so I think cool. it makes you a little bit more kind of removed. I mean, they everyone who I work with in property knows that I'm a fetish model. You know, I, I, yeah. I've never pretended to be anything else but if your income is pretty regular it's 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 behaving in a sort of predictable fashion and has done for a while then it's all right um so do they lend the money to the company or to you to the company Ah, but the company is me i mean the company is only me that's Um, that's an interesting way to do it yeah it's quite it's quite convoluted and annoying there are lots of extra hoops to jump through Mm. but yeah, it does make it possible to do. But actually, the first couple I bought, I just bought in my own name, not through my company, and that was okay as well. Okay. Because um, I, I pay myself a salary, so I've got I've yeah. got the evidence of that. So it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Um, but you don't need, I, I want to say, you don't need a massive income to be allowed to do it. So to get a buy-to-let mortgage, um, you only need to be making about £35,000 a year to buy a fairly cheap property as long as you've saved up the money for the 25 percent deposit it's you don't need to be making you know half a million a year to do it by any means um interesting because really they know that you're going to be paying the mortgage with the rent from the flat um so they're not expecting you to be able to show that you'd be able to pay eight mortgages if no no one was living in any of your houses yeah um so do you have any insurance policies against what happens if the flats are empty for a while? Yes, yeah, I have rent guarantee insurance. Um, oh, okay. so that if Oh, I, I didn't mean actual like an insurance policy with an insurance company. I meant just sort of, you know, other things, other irons in, in the fire to... As, but, but I have as, them as well, yeah. Okay. I've, got, I've got, I mean, the good thing with, um, with property is that you can always decide to change how you use it. So you could use it for short ty- short-term holiday mm-hmm. lets, for example. Um, or, I mean, you can just, sell if if you've got a property that really isn't renting well uh, as long as your finances are in good enough order one of my flats was empty for three months um while i renovated some stuff and as long as you've got just some cash in reserve you don't want to be kind of putting everything every last penny you have into investing in property because you do need a buffer for stuff going wrong because it will yeah like always it will yeah but actually the more more property you have the less of an issue it is if you know if one of them becomes a disaster the other ones uh, the chances of them all becoming a disaster at the same time are are very small yeah like if 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 everyone stopped buying my courses they'd probably still be buying my books for a while or if if one book tanks then the other books will carry it and exactly so diversification right often makes you less vulnerable doesn't it so i don't buy in the same place every time i buy in a wide variety of areas um, oh really for exactly that reason yeah (laughs) okay can i ask where where do you have Totally. Um, London, I have 
Barry in South Wales. Okay. I have Wolverhampton and I have Telford at the moment. And I'm just looking to buy another one in South Wales at the moment. Okay. Excellent. You should come to East Anglia. I love East Anglia. I love it. My dad is from Norwich. Well, oh, right. from North Walsham, really. And we used to go on holiday a lot. I love it. I love it in Norfolk. Or maybe you're not in Norfolk. I'm in, well. in Ipswich. So technically, okay. I'm, okay. I'm supposed to not like you anymore because your dad's from Norwich. And Ipswich and Norwich Sorry. hate each other with a fiery okay. passion. But, but it's okay. I only moved here like six years ago. So I haven't quite okay. absorbed okay. all the local um, prejudices yet. <laughs> I love it. And I haven't actually looked at property in the area. I don't know what um, I don't know what it's doing. But I really, it's one of the things I do if I can't sleep. I just look at right move. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like look at areas I don't know and see what the kind of trajectory of it all is. Okay. So you buy a place, do it up as necessary. I assume you use contractors for that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I do my own painting and wallpapering because I love it. But everything else I'm useless at. Right. Um, and then... You just sort of put it on the market, somebody rents it, and it's done. Do you use agents for that? Yes, I do. Yeah, because I travel, well, normally when COVID isn't happening, I travel a lot. So I know I can't be leaving my tenant without, you know, electricity for two weeks because I'm away. So I have agents for all of them so that they can, so that tenants can get immediate responses if anything goes wrong. The I have a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. Um, ah. The first thing, I am, I am fascinated to hear your answer to this one because it's because you've done so many different things but what is the best idea you have not acted on oh gosh i have so many ideas so many uh, and maybe this is the same for you i feel like people with these really abiding passions they often have more ideas than they can possibly act on uh, so i <laughs> i have a book idea that i haven't written um property investment for models that oh. I desperate, I desperately want to write it. I desperately want to, and I just haven't had time. There's a spanking movie I want to produce um, called. <laughs> Did you ever see the drama Quantum Leap? Yes. Okay, I want to. <laughs> I want to make a spanking movie based on that. Okay, um, tell, tell us about your spanking movie based on Quantum Leap. I am fascinated. <laughs> so Quantum Spank okay. would be about a scientist yep. who keeps being like shunted into other people's bodies, into different historical situations where they're just about to get punished for something, and they don't really know what it was for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I sort of, I think it might be a little bit of a Jesus complex thing because you're kind of being a martyr. Like you're, you're kind of experiencing this punishment that someone else has earned that you're like, you're like taking it on. I mean, not through choice because you've just been kind of magicked into their body, but the idea of, of that, someone getting sort of stuck in a loop where they're just jumping from one historical scenario to another, where they're just about to get punished again. Um, <laughs> But it's very ambitious and it would need a lot of props and a lot of locations. And I keep putting it off because it's a lot. Um, so I have many ideas like that that I just I can't take action on them all. Um, but okay. I'm hoping I'm hoping that if this book I've got an agent, but he's currently trying to get his like, uh, what's the word? What is, oh, the word is submitting. Oh, <laughs> submitting right. it to publish. He's submitting it. Hmm. <laughs> apt in this case. It makes me want to write another book called On Submission, because that's what my memoir is on at the moment. On Submission sounds like a good title for a book. Um, yeah. So hopefully, if I get a publishing deal for this one, I can start working on the next one. And I have many, many ideas for what the next one should be. 
So those are, okay, those are so, some, of the, so, some of the ideas. So well, you, you need to finish the book that you're writing at the moment. Right? I've finished it. You've fi- no, oh, you finished, finished it? That's all oh, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And remind us of the title? Playing to Lose. Playing to Lose. Does it have a subtitle? Not yet. I mean, it might have to have one because it doesn't really, I don't think many people would know what it was, would they? If they you, yeah. probably, it'll probably need to be called Memoir of a Submissive Model or something, probably. Probably. Um, probably. Yeah. Um, but that's something that's. And, and you're, you're, you're putting that through, or you're, you're looking for a publisher for that? Yes. Okay. Yes, right now. And you have an agent. Brilliant. Okay. So you're yes. going the traditionally published route. Excellent. Okay. Yes. And you have. You want to write a book for how, basically how models can get into owning property. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, that's got a fairly that'd be fairly easy to market because it's a very specific. Niche. It's very specific. Yeah. I just um, I basically want to write it for my friends because models are always asking me, and I just want to put all the information yeah. in one place. Really, people are always asking me how to like make a reasonable living as a martial arts instructor. And you know, particularly like through the pandemic, where I couldn't go and teach in person, and yet we were somehow no. fine, right? Good. Because of online courses and yeah. books and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, I I keep thinking I should probably just write out like the principles of how to make a living. Yes. Um, not in person, when you have yes. a traditionally in person job. Absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's really what I'm looking okay. to do. And what was your book on submission really about? My book on submission, well, that's like that's one of the ones I haven't written yet. Yeah. I just, I'd like to do one, because my memoir is obviously very focused on me. There yeah. is, uh, you can't get away from it. And I'd like to do a book where I get to talk to other people, really. I'd like okay. to interview other kinky people. I'd very much like to do a book where I find people who have been harmed by perceptions about BDSM people who've lost their jobs because of it people who have experienced um discrimination like um the father of Millie Dowler the murdered schoolgirl from Walton on Thames so he had some bondage magazines in his loft which the police found and that made him a suspect oh my god yeah so they they completely botched the investigation because they fixated on this oh my god well he's kinky oh my god he's probably a murderer um (sighs) And stories like that, there are actually when you when you start asking, you find a lot of stories yeah. like that. Not as high profile, but similar miscarriages of justice as a result. So I'd like to write a sort of more outwardly focused book on that. Um, okay. And maybe those books will make loads of money, and with that money, you can produce Quantum Spank. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> one day, maybe. <laughs> It is my hope. I can I can see it all in my mind, and in those situations, you really should do something about it, shouldn't you? Because that that vision doesn't go away. If there's something yeah. you really want to do, you should do it. So I will yeah. hopefully one day. That's pretty much how I operate. Like I have all these yeah. ideas, and I usually write them down somewhere or whatever, and then yeah. I will find myself on a Tuesday morning or something, busily at work on a project. I hadn't even thought on Monday I was going to go anywhere near but it turns out this is the thing I need to do next and so I just do it yes yeah it's a it's a lovely feeling yeah it is yeah um okay so my last question okay um I usually ask my guests if you had a billion quid to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide how would you spend it I don't think I wouldn't know yes well quite no but um so if you had if you had the money to put towards some other cause 
Where would the money go and why? I would use it to bribe every single like media outlet who ever published any stories about pornography or sex work. I would bribe them to have a sex worker or a pornographer represented every time they discuss it. That's what I do. Wow. Because I okay. am very tired of seeing people talking about my industry who don't know anything about my industry. And there are lots of intelligent and articulate people in my industry, in my community, and they are not given the chance to to talk on these matters. So at the moment, we're seeing something where um, online modelling, um, a lot of people believe that it's basically sex trafficking, that the women huh. doing it are, are trafficked. Now, I anyone in the industry knows perfectly well that that's not the case. I mean, there may be some people who are trafficked, but a massive majority, a massive majority of us have never met anyone who's been trafficked, never met a trafficker. I mean, our industry is full of people who are consenting to be there, as you'd know if you were in the industry, because you, where, you see the you see models turning up in their own cars, being paid into their own bank accounts. Like, doing whereas work the construction industry is full of trafficked people. Yeah, yeah, or agriculture. Agriculture too, yeah. I believe. Um, so I would very much like it if when these stories go get onto TV, etc., there would always be a sex worker putting their side of the story. And I feel like bribery might be the only way we'll get that. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you'd... Yeah, it's hard to see how you how the money could could do that. Like, because... I know. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't think of another way to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I think just paying the editors directly probably wouldn't work in the long term. I mean, I'd give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe... Because maybe once it became... Like, once it became a thing, a traditional thing, that, you know, there are lots of things we don't discuss on TV without having... Right. Okay. You, you, whenever you... Profession represented. I, I know that people watch football a lot. Personally, no, but I know that other people mm -hmm. do. And there are always these completely boring people wanking on knowledgeably about what they just saw. And most of them are ex-footballers. Yes. Right? Yes. That seems reasonable. Yes. Yeah. So I would just like to bribe enough people for it to become a thing that we do when we discuss sex work. We obviously have a sex worker on the programme. And once yeah. it became like a normalised thing, then hopefully I wouldn't have to bribe any more people. <laughs> or maybe, maybe maybe set up some sort of fund to fund um, investigative journalism into these areas, but with actual yes, competent journalists who are being paid by this media outlet that the money creates to, yes. to find out the actual truth about what's going on. That actually, I remember now, that's another idea I've not acted on, is to make a documentary where I go and try to find models who've been trafficked into my industry. Yes. Because yeah. I feel like I wouldn't find them, but I would be interested to try. Yeah, that would be... Hmm. You're going to need a lot of money. Yeah. There's work yeah, to be I done. Know. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it nice to have the kind of mind where you've got far more ideas than time or money? Right. I find it's useful to remember that um, that if you have a lot of ideas, some of them are likely to be good. But if you That's have, what, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think the percentage of good ideas remains pretty much constant, whoever you are. So to have ten good ideas, you need to have a thousand ideas total. Right. Right. To have, yes. If you only have a hundred ideas, 
you have like a one in ten shot of one of them actually being good. Yes. Yeah. So having more is better. Yeah. Generally, more probably. it is. is good. And you know, I've got billions of like ideas written down for various things, which many of which I haven't acted on because they turned out not to be a great idea. I got the sense you probably would. Yeah. I mean, you, clearly you have like quite wide range of interests within your field, and you, yeah, you want to have your books and your courses, and you want to be teaching in real life and it sounds yeah you sound like the sort of person who always has more ideas than time as well probably yeah and you still have to have time for like doing things that aren't work yeah like flying planes <laughs> yeah <laughs> obviously yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, brilliant well <laughs> thank you very much indeed for joining me today it's been lovely talking you to you you are very welcome thank you very much for having me Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ariel. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. And yes, we've tried to find some safe work images of Ariel to put in the show notes. Um, and also, of course, links to her websites and what have you. So go have fun. Um, while you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And join us next week, where I'll be talking to Andrew, his very self, about harps and other things. So, my guest next week is Dr. Andrew Lawrence King, historical musician, harpist, continuo player, conductor, well, sorry, director of uh, Baroque orchestras. We actually had a conversation about why he's not strictly a conductor. Winner of a Grammy. I think he's the first person to come on the show who's got a Grammy in his pocket. Uh, in the category of Best Small Ensemble Performance, he is also a rapier fencer and Tai Chi practitioner. So we have plenty to talk about. And you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, do leave a review. Every little helps. So thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Thank you.